At a ceremony earlier this week, Secretary of State Antony Blinken presented five American companies, large and small, with the department's Award for Corporate Excellence. The awards recognize companies that reflect the administration's focus areas when it comes to corporate diplomacy. To learn more about this year's awards, I spoke to Special Representative for Commercial and Business Affairs at the State Department, Sarah Morgenthal. The Award for Corporate Excellence is an exciting program now in its 24th year. This is the Secretary of State's Award for Corporate Excellence. And it was actually started under the Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright. She had the brilliance and the wherewithal to understand the importance of the government working with the private sector and the business community in particular. And it honors U.S. companies demonstrating leadership in their overseas operations, specifically recognizing U.S. firms that uphold the highest standards of responsible business conduct and whose operational practices and decision-making exemplify American values and international best practices. And look, having a U.S. presence with the business community in these countries is good diplomacy and it's good foreign policy. These companies are our country's greatest ambassadors. They invest sustainably. They set high standards of corporate responsibility throughout their supply chains, carrying the torch for American values overseas and implementing transparent practices that respect local communities. This year, you had two categories. You can talk a little bit about that, but also tell us a little bit of how those categories are selected themselves as well. Yeah. So we actually had three categories this year. Uh, one uh, was innovation, which recognizes companies who offer solutions to solve today's challenges, such as addressing climate change and food insecurity, as well as transforming the local community. The second one was women's economic security, which honors a company's commitment to supporting women's economic security and help elevating women to become more competitive in the job market. And the third is sustainable supply chains, which celebrates a company's commitment to improve the environmental, social, and nutritional impacts of their operations and supply chains. So these themes are American themes. They are initiatives that are reflected by our administration, by the Biden administration, and American values, which we are seeing reflected in these companies that are operating overseas. All right. And so how do you take stock of, you know, companies that are doing work overseas, but are also doing work to highlight those categories that you look at? And how do you choose the winners? Perfect question. What happens is we have our diplomats that are missions around the world who work with many of these U.S. companies. And when they come across a company or companies that are going above and beyond focusing not just on profit margin, but on other good values, American values, they're able to nominate these companies. And that's essentially, you know, how they were selected. This year, we had five companies which were awarded. Three were from African countries. One was from Jordan and one was from Poland. We were very fortunate to have Ambassador Mark Brzezinski come from Poland to the ceremony, which was an added bonus because we had the company Google Poland that was selected by his post. And can you talk a little bit about how this award program really does exemplify how the path to foreign diplomacy and even sometimes in the intelligence community really does start with doing business in other countries? There is kind of a pathway there that many business leaders follow that, you know, find themselves in positions such as yourself. I think that, you know, what you're seeing is, again, these companies are really embodying the values that are promoted throughout all of our interactions with our partner countries, which is enormously important. 
you know, as I said before, these U.S. companies are some of our country's greatest ambassadors. They invest sustainably. They set high standards of corporate responsibility throughout their supply chain, carrying the torch for American values overseas and implementing transparent practices that respect our local communities, all things that couldn't be more important. You know, they reflect the American values and high standards, transparency, adherence to the rule of law, sustainable development, economic empowerment, fair wages in the communities where they operate. They recognize that you don't have to choose between profit and doing what's right. So these U.S. businesses are really stewards of our human rights, our economic empowerment in the global communities where they operate. And they lead the way in promoting growth with integrity and excellence. And they raise the bar, you know, everything from anti-corruption, ethical business practices to inclusive labor policies. We're speaking with Sarah Morgenthau. She is the Special Representative for Commercial and Business Affairs with the U.S. State Department. And I guess we've held off long enough. Uh, We should probably send some recognition towards those winners. Uh, What can you tell me about the winners of this year's awards? Thank you. And it was really exciting to be uh, with these five companies yesterday with Secretary Blinken and others. We also had many of their families join as well. So I think this really was a very, very exciting moment. We had five winners yesterday. Three were from Africa, one from Jordan, one from Poland. These were all American companies working overseas, only one large, and the others are small and medium-sized. So the first company, Avertra, is a medium-sized, Virginia-based American software company with a branch in Amman, Jordan. And it's dedicated to ensuring an equitable and equal workplace for women's employment. So they won in the Women's Economic Security category. And, you know, it's especially important in a very male-dominated field. The second company, uh, also uh, one in the women's uh, economic security category, Google Poland, which is dedicated to promoting gender equality in the workplace and supporting women in tech initiatives in Poland and in the Central and Eastern European region. So again, these are tools for diplomacy, for foreign policy, and you can sort of see the connection as I weave through, you know, how we selected. The third one is a winner in innovation, and it's Contegra Biotechnology, which has pioneered Kenya's revival as a global leader in farming iwithum, which is a climate change resistant crop and product used in sustainable organic biopesticides to grow healthier food and protect safe water worldwide. The next one is Parcel, which won in the sustainable supply chain category. And they are supporting vaccine transport in Africa through cold chain data collection and analytics at the national district and local levels in Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, Burkina Faso, Burundi, Niger, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, DRC. Um, So another really exciting company. And then the last one, also one in the sustainable supply chain category, and it is called Ampersand USA. Ampersand is Africa's first mobility energy company providing electricity and vehicles to power thousands of electric motorcycle taxis across the continent. So Rwanda-based Ampersand now serves over a thousand moto taxi drivers, including female drivers in Rwanda and Kenya, where the company expanded in 2022. So five really exciting companies in our countries around the world, truly reflecting American values. 
All right. And so as you went through those, it goes a lot in what the policy agenda is of the State Department. You know, you never really know what the world is going to dictate. When do you start, you know, for next year's? I'm, I know I'm already jumping ahead for you, but don't... tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow. <laughs> so, so you start tomorrow looking for the next year's winners, huh? Yeah, this is really an enormous effort by the State Department, by, you know, the Economic Bureau here at the State Department at working with our posts, you know, all around the world to make sure that, you know, we're really thinking through, you know, what are the the great ambassadors and the great companies uh, that, that are working. And it's part of our, you know, larger effort of this office to work closely with the business community, work closely with American companies, uh, because I said, uh, you know, they are really the tools that we need to do effective diplomacy and effective foreign policy. Sarah Morgenthau is Special Representative for Commercial and Business Affairs at the State Department. We'll post this interview and a link to more information about this year's awards at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Listen to the Federal Drive anywhere in the world. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, 
just to name a few, and you have an amazing career, what have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, 
go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. 
there's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.